0: Hello and welcome to A Wee Bit of War, a podcast dedicated to telling stories of Northern Ireland during the Second World War. I'm your host, Scott Edgar, and in this episode, we're joined by Dr. Christine Schmidt to mark Holocaust Memorial Day 2023. Christine is a historian of the Holocaust with a passion for and a commitment to public history, archives and cultural heritage. She's also the Deputy Director and Head of Research at the Wiener Holocaust Library in London, and someone that I had the pleasure of working with as part of the Being Human Festival in 2021. Christine, welcome to the podcast. Uh, We're delighted to finally have you join us, and it's a pleasure to get chatting to you again. Uh, I mentioned in my intro that we briefly worked together uh, putting on an exhibition in Belfast as part of the Being Human Festival in 2021, Uh, That was my first introduction to the amazing work done by the Wiener Holocaust Library. Uh, For any of our listeners who don't yet know, uh, could you tell us a little bit about you and the work you do?
1: Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me. Um, It's really good to be back, even if we're not back in person together yet. Um, I've worked for the Wiener Holocaust Library for about 10 years now. Actually, um, next month, it'll be 10 years. I'm a historian by training. Um, I work as the deputy director and, and head of research. Um, and I've always been sort of specifically focused on the Holocaust um, and I've always taken a, an interest in public history and archives. so it's really a you know, perfect place to work when you have those kind of interests um, and I came to the library to set up um, access to our uh, a really particular archive called the International Tracing Service Archive which you referred to in, in the introduction um, this exhibition focused on we can talk about that um, in a minute if you like but The library is really a fascinating place to work um, because it's the oldest collection of Holocaust-related materials. um, One of the oldest collections in the world and certainly the largest and oldest collection in the UK. Um, We take our namesake after Alfred Wiener, who was a German-Jewish scholar who, um, after returning from fighting uh, in World War I, he noted with with alarm the rise in anti-Semitism in Germany and... He began to campaign against the rise of of Nazism uh, by collecting and disseminating information. He was very much an activist um, who tried to undermine their work uh, through collecting information. Um, But of course, this put him into a certain amount of danger as the Nazis uh, came to power, and he fled Germany in 1933 with his family, um, his wife and three daughters, and they settled in Amsterdam, and then he set up what is the uh, predecessor organization to the library called the Jewish Central Information Office. And they also began to, he and colleagues began to collect um, and uh, disseminate information um, in order to undermine uh, undermine the Nazis and, and their, uh, their sympathizers. So um, after Kristallnacht in 1938, so this was the pogrom um, that was organized in November 1938 in Germany and Austria, uh, Wiener began to prepare to move to the UK and he arrived um, with this collection in 1939 just before the war began uh, but his wife and children uh, unfortunately couldn't get out and they remained behind in the Netherlands and ended up being deported to uh, Westerbork camp and Bergen-Belsen and um, his family survived, his wife only barely, she ended up um, perishing from the ill treatment that she received in Bergen-Belsen just after liberation. So. For Wiener, it was obviously a um, political, um, ideological impetus to collect, but also a very personal one. And we've essentially been collecting on materials on the Holocaust and other genocides since 1933. And this year we'll actually celebrate our 90th uh, birthday. So we're going to have a lot of um, events and opportunities to engage with our collections throughout the year. We hold approximately 70,000 books and pamphlets, um, about 2,000 physical document collections, uh, 45,000 photographs, and about 3,000 periodical titles, a million press cuttings, um, as well as posters, objects, and artworks, um, and audiovisual materials. But this also doesn't include our digital material. We were just chatting about um, digitization uh, just a minute ago, um, some of which we only have in digital copy, and this particularly relates to the International Tracing Service archive, um, which we were uh, uh, talking about when we came to Belfast a few years ago.
0: So one thing I think that both of us find incredibly interesting is the the real life stories that you often find in archives and and through the library and and through chatting with you, I became aware of the Arleson archives or the International Tracing Service. Um, for any of our listeners who'd like to know more about these, um, how can they how can they find out more and uh where can they explore these archives?
1: Yeah, thanks. We um the our the International Tracing Service Archive, which is now known as the Erlson Archives, um came together. Um it was actually it, it's actually one of the largest collections of Holocaust era uh documents anywhere in the world. It came together in uh, the post-war period as the allies were opening up uh, concentration camps and other sites of persecution. Uh, They began to collect the materials that they found, the documents that they found, lists of names, um, you know, uh, uh, sort of camp statistics and things like that, um, and began to repurpose them for tracing. And then on top of that collection. was added uh, materials about post-war emigration, and care for displaced persons, and um, post-war refugees. So this collection essentially came to be centralized in what is now uh, known as Bad Erlsen Germany, it was known as Erlsen uh, then, um, and it was the center of tracing. So this archive was built on the idea of finding missing people. And nowadays it's been digitized, so it's completely um, in digital format, and it's been accessible in particular locations around the world. Um, in the UK, it's accessible at the library in full. So in London, you can come and you can access the material. We have a team of researchers led by my colleague Elise Bath, who help people find um, out more about their families or individual fates of people. It Essentially, the collection contains 30 million documents relating to 17 over 17 million people. So it's, it's massive. Um, and it's really important, I think, to find uh, people who can help you navigate the material and also interpret the material when you find it. You can access some of the material online um, on the Arrelson Archives website. They're working exceptionally hard to put uh, more material online and we work alongside them to help people interpret um, interpret the, me- the material. Um, what's kind of interesting about it is that it essentially, in many ways, gives, you know, the story of the Holocaust in, in the UK is, is a story of, in many ways, of refugees who came to the UK, but um, the ITS archive or the Errolson archives talks about people who were left behind, essentially, or um, people who didn't um, weren't able to leave uh, continental Europe um, as refugees in times and and were persecuted and, and caught up in the Nazi camp system. So um, it you know it it works well with other archives. It works well with other materials, um, and so it's really. Um, I think, important to have it accessible in places where you can combine it with other materials for your research. And we really do um, assist people with that. So you can contact us anytime and we'd be happy to help.
0: And you mentioned briefly there about refugees coming to the UK. Um, so this episode is going out during the week when we mark Holocaust Memorial Day. Uh, even before the outbreak of the Second World War, Northern Ireland had begun to... Uh, offer a place of refuge to young Jewish people fleeing occupied Europe. Uh, this is known as the kinder transport, but how, how did that come about? How did it come about that places like Windermere in England and Mill Island County Down become these places of safety?
1: So I think, yeah, I mean, you, the kinder transport is probably the most well-known scheme uh, through which Jewish refugees or young Jewish refugees arrived um, in the UK and it included the rescue of some 10,000 mainly Jewish child refugees from Nazi Germany, Austria, Czechoslovakia, and Poland. Um, The the program was uh, put together after the, essentially after the November program, which I mentioned already, the Kristallnacht um, in November, 1938. And it was mainly financed by Jewish communal organizations across the UK. Um, debated in, in Parliament where um, it was agreed that a limited uh, number of child refugees could come um, as long as they didn't become a financial burden on the state, so hence the, the private uh, funding. So there were many relief organizations and Jewish agencies that took action in Europe to arrange for the transports. Um, one of the most well-known figures we often hear of is Sir Nicholas Winton, who worked for key organizers like um, Doreen Warriner and Marie Schmölka on the Czech side who conceived of and organized the transport of unaccompanied children from Czechoslovakia. Um, and of course the places on the transport were highly sought after. Children needed a guarantor in the UK to secure their pay- place. So um, it needed to be 50 pounds. Um, parents were not permitted to travel with their children. So this was obviously a um, agonizing decision for parents to separate from their children. Um, uh, there's a, uh, the historian Deborah Dwork actually has this really great phrase that she talks about, uh, parents being the first rescuers of their own children. Um, when we think about um, safe havens and um, the decision that very desperate decision to uh, separate from your own children in order to ensure, hopefully ensure their safety. Um, so, as you could imagine, on the scheme for children, this might have been the last time that many of them saw their parents. Um, So it's a a rather ambiguous situation. Um, There were many refugee aid organizations helping children um, and other refugees once they arrived in the UK, including the Belfast uh, Refugee Aid Committee. Um, And we also have some material in the library. We have a lot of material related to the kinder transport in general, um, but the library itself was built by Jewish refugees to the UK. So you can imagine that um, the kind of shape of our collections um, relates to this refugee history very much.
0: Of course, on this podcast, we focus uh, primarily on the history of Northern Ireland during the Second World War. And going back to, you just mentioned the library and and the Arleson archives there. What kind of materials might we find in there that would relate to Ulster during this period?
1: So um, the, um, as I mentioned, the library's collection was essentially shaped by uh, Jewish refugees to the UK. Um, We uh, also, we do have material uh, from people who came to Northern Ireland at some point during their flight. We have, uh, for example, letters, a really interesting collection um, of letters from Elias and Gretel Dresner um, to their children, Rolf and Helga, who had come on the kinder transport in 1939. And of course, their parents remained uh, be- behind. They had been in Scotland for a time and then came to the Mill Isle farm. Um, their parents were both murdered during the Holocaust. Elias was shot in Tarnoff and Gretel uh, was sent to the death camp in Belgets. Um, the letters that they saved um, and which we have in our collections, have some 70 uh, pages of these letters paid, paint essentially the picture of the warm family life. It's not a lot about the farm itself or about their experiences because obviously we only have one side of the correspondence but these letters from um, their parents indicate um, this kind of life that, that was destroyed essentially. So um, it's a really fascinating collection We also have a lot of unpublished memoirs from uh, former refugees and survivors. Uh, We have a short one by Oskar Rudnitsky, who fled to Belfast at the age of 30 after he was kicked out of his legal studies and profession in Germany due to his Jewish background. Um, What's interesting about him is his father had actually converted. He was uh, his father was a Protestant clergyman, um, but he was still persecuted as a Jew. So we have accounts from uh, other former kinder transportees who eventually were taken to the Mill Isle refugee settlement farm, for example, by Gerald Jason, who was formerly Gert uh, Jacobowitz, And he talks about his time specifically on the farm, um, which is quite a colorful account of what life life was like uh, for him not being used to uh, doing this kind of uh, agricultural work. And some of this you can hear, we have a particularly interesting um, resource called our Refugee Map, um, which I can send you the link for if, you, if you'd like to include it with the podcast. Um, we feature over 450 um, kind of excerpts of our family document collections and you can sort of see the people's trajectories very easily. Um, and it includes uh, audiovisual testimony from people like uh, Gerald Jason. So that might be kind of interesting uh, for our listeners. Um, and then also we have um, a lot of Holocaust survivor and refugee testimonies that, that were gathered in the 1950s by the library. Um, in the immediate post-war period. And this is a very early collection of written accounts. Um, we have uh, one or two examples of uh, people who had spent time um, in Northern Ireland uh, during their flight. Um, I, have a, I have an excerpt here. I don't know if you, if we have a moment to read it. I can, it's, it's pretty interesting. It's from someone named um, Dr. S. Alexander. Um, and he talks about his uh, first day in Britain uh, in Belfast, um, and this was, again, We uh, the library received this in 1955 as part of this um, effort to collect uh, uh, survivor accounts in the post-war period. And he says, we were quite news in Belfast. He's talking about his arrival. Um, and it seems as if the whole population had gone out of their way to make us happy. There, were all, the, there were, were all the time and for all refugees, arrangements for parties, concerts, motor trips, and even balls. I was invited from the Ulster Group Theater to play small parts. I accepted happily and was happy and was lucky to be in three productions. There were about 120 refugees living in Northern Ireland, mostly Austrians. About 24 lived in Dublin. And I do not know whether it is known, but the day after war broke out, the Irish government sent them over the border to Belfast, where they, of course, were received with the same kindness and hospitality like the others. I stayed in Belfast until my internment in June 1940. So we have lots of uh, material like this. Um, And I think... Um, as I mentioned, the ITS collection before, um, that there's a whole scope for further research on um, experiences of people who came to Northern Ireland, but also who again left um, family behind because they couldn't uh, get out. We have, um, I think on your website, you show the list of names of um, children who were taken to, um, who were brought to the Mill Isle farm. So that was a list that was gathered in 1946 by the World Jewish Congress. Um, you can find that in the ITS collection but the ITS collection works really well if you use it alongside other collections so I know at the public record office Northern Ireland there is this um, collection of material that relates to the Ministry of Commerce who were um, that there was a scheme um, where Austrian Jews were applying to be able to set up businesses and to relocate to Northern Ireland and some of them were successful um, but in the main they weren't So the strength of ITS collection is using this alongside the names you can find um, in that uh, collection at the public record office. My colleague um, Elise Bath has done um, an incredible amount of work researching some of the individuals who tried to apply to the scheme. Um, There were some like uh, someone named Gerhard Lemke, who he was, although he was denied um, a a visa to Northern Ireland, he was able to flee to, to Shanghai and survived. But there were others like Georg and Jenny Volkoltz who were unable to escape Nazi persecution after they were denied um, and were murdered in Auschwitz Birkenau. So it's a again, it's a it's a mixed um, and, and difficult uh, history to research. Um, and again, the um, the sites uh, that we were talking about they represent the safe haven, but there's always this ambiguous and you know uh, mixed kind of context to the reason why people were there yeah it was uh, answers
0: in a bit. <laughs> yeah, it's a fantastic answer. Um, it was really great to hear that um, that kind of first hand written uh, testimony and you know there's certainly a, a lot of information even in this short conversation of things that I wasn't <laughs> aware of. Um, so yeah, we'll we'll definitely be doing more research together uh, going forward. Um, within Northern Ireland, there's there's a little bit of knowledge about the resettlement farm at Mill Isle. There's probably less knowledge about the Jewish community in Belfast. They a hostel up at Clifton Park Avenue. And, and personally, I think these are things that deserve much greater awareness. Um, what kind of roles did these places play and just how important were they um, for these displaced people across Europe?
1: Yeah, I mean, as you said After the war, there were a number of places in the UK that received um, Jewish child survivors or older um, survivors and also refugees who came before the war. Um, After the war, the government gave permission to about, uh, for about a thousand children to come over. um, uh, And they eventually only found about 700. And places like Windermere, you mentioned earlier in the Lake District or the Mill Isle Farm served as care homes for uh, recuperating children. And I think these sites, as imperfect as they were, um, I understand the farmhouse in in Mill Mill Isle had to be adapted um, before it could receive uh, so many people. Um, They served, I think, as important sites where surviving children and young people were cared for, even if at the same time, I mean, this is both and history to uh, refugee history, the persecution of parents they may have left behind and indeed who may not have survived, um, weighed extremely heavily on their day-to-day experience as they were Uh, escaping Nazi persecution or surviving it. So there's this mixed um, history involved um, in the refugee experience. Um, And I think for the UK, these sites have become an important part of the post-war legacy of the Holocaust. Um, If you look at the Association of Jewish Refugees has created this really wonderful map and I know it links up to your website as well, Scott, um, this Holocaust UK map. And you can see how many sites um, like Mill Isle there were um, and, and I think, I'm not sure that people actually realize the extent to which these um, safe havens were created. Um, so I think you know that this, in terms of Mill Isle, um, there was not only this farm where children were housed, but they also became integrated into the local community. So I think that's an aspect that um, can be particularly interesting. Um, I know there's been commemorations at the local school um, where they also attended. Um, And it's quite a remarkable story considering the um, manager of the farm had little experience um, in farming. um, And I think your piece shows how it became this fully fledged working farm and um, children became so well integrated into activities there and um, local community groups and some even stayed on. So I mentioned Gerald Jason, um, he uh, gave his testimony to the AJR, um, the Association of Jewish Refugees, and we include this on our refugee map, but he stayed on. Um, to study at Queen's uh, University Belfast. So not everybody left either. So it's, it's quite interesting to think about the impact um, and the kind of longer-term legacy of uh, people coming to these regions. Um, I think, I guess I would, you know, sort of just reinforce that, you know, while it's important to remember that these were sites of temporary refuge um, and safe havens, The context of why Jewish refugees and other political refugees were theirs is also really important to remember. Um, You pointed out, I was reading your article in preparation for this, um, Scott, and you you pointed out this kind of lack of postal communication uh, between the children and their parents and this kind of waiting um, with no news, uh, the turmoil and anxiety that was involved in sort of waiting to hear from parents or families. And if you read accounts from former refugees who spent time at sites like Nalil. Um, it seems most had very positive memories of their experiences, but at the same time, this clearly weighed heavily on, on a day-to-day basis. Um, and I think we can't forget the circumstances which brought them there, um, which were quite painful and traumatic. So it's, it's a really interesting history, these, these sites, and I, and I hope more people learn more about them as we uncover more research and kind of connect the, the history of these sites to the wider history of the Holocaust.
0: Um, Of course, uh, Christine, there are many organizations doing great work in preserving these legacies that we've spoken about and preserving and telling the stories of those persecuted uh, during the Nazi regime. What is next uh, specifically for the Wiener Holocaust Library?
1: So we, like I said, we will have our anniversary, our 90th anniversary year um, this year. So we'll be hosting a lot of um, different events and um, featuring new material on our website. We're going through an extensive digital transformation project now where we're trying to digitize more of our collections. We recognize that not everybody can come to London. It's not always desirable. Um, to travel all over to get um, access to material. So we're trying to make more of this accessible. Um, one of the ways we do this, um, again, arguably, this is more for audiences in London, but we do have series of temporary exhibitions, um, but we also travel them as well. As you as you mentioned, we brought um, our, one of our traveling exhibitions to, uh, to Belfast. And um, so our temporary, next te- temporary exhibitions will focus on Holocaust letters that will open at the end of February. Um, And we will hopefully have a lot of online content as well associated with that exhibition. So if you can't attend in person, you can take part in our events. We have a a, quite a vibrant events program, um, which you can find out on our on our website. Um, But we're continuing. I mean, we've we've been here for 90 years. We've been doing this for 90 years. So we're just we're going to keep going. Um, And we essentially we. continue our important work of collecting material we, we sort of stand on the shoulders of those who came before us and we continue to safeguard this material and try to make it accessible to as many people as possible who want to learn about the past about this important past
0: and people do still want to learn about th- this past and as, as we said this episode will go out uh, just before holocaust memorial day 2023 why do you think it is vitally important that we still remember these events and mark a Memorial Day in the 21st century?
1: I think days like Holocaust Memorial Day are still really, really important for highlighting the significance of this history in the present. Um, I think especially when commemoration means that people take additional steps to complicate their thinking about contemporary society and to look critically about, um, critically at the world around them. Um, I also think it's interesting to think about what local communities do to commemorate the Holocaust and genocide more generally, um, which in some ways might be more interesting than the kind of overarching theme um, or, you know, sort of bigger official ceremonies that um, we host. I think it's really interesting. For example, I was looking at the commemoration at the school um, and the descendants of Maurice Solomon um, last year um, in Northern Ireland. I I think to find out what local communities are doing to Uh, uncover the local history of the Holocaust is really fascinating, so um, it's very important. Um, I would also say I think I'm I'm really appreciative of being here on the podcast and and talking about the library's work. We're always really grateful for any um, publicity we can can get to let people know that we're here, Um, and as I mentioned, this is our 90th anniversary year, so there'll be a lot of material coming out um, as well, Um, but we are here all year round. So if anyone wants to continue their learning or research after Holocaust Memorial Day, we're very happy to open our collections and um, and to assist and support people with their research, whether it's about their own family histories or about a kind of a larger uh, research project. Um, we're here all year. So not only on Holocaust Memorial Day, but I'm really appreciative of, of being invited to come on the podcast. So thank you very much.
0: Um Christine, it is always great to chat to you. And um, we hope, well, we hope to. We will definitely uh, work uh, with you again soon. Um, But until then, uh, where can people find you and keep up with the great work that you do at the Wiener Holocaust Library?
1: Thanks, Scott. So we're at wienerholocaustlibrary.org where you can find out everything about our events. Um, A lot of these events are, again, virtual or hybrid. So even if you aren't located in London, You can access them. We also have a number of digital resources. Um, The testimony that I mentioned earlier, um, you can find out on our website as well, um, as well as our refugee map. So just go to wienerholocaustlibrary.org and that is your kind of central hub for all of this information about what we do.
0: Christine, thank you for joining us and uh, we hope to chat to you again soon.
1: Thanks a lot, Scott. It's really been great to be here. Thank you.
0: If you would like to find out more about the Kinder transport in Northern Ireland, visit wartimeni.com slash Kindertransport. And if you'd like to hear from a Holocaust survivor who came to the Millisle Farm in 1946, be sure to listen back to episode two, where we chatted to Rachel Levy about her life before, during, and after the Second World War. Subscribe to A Wee Bit of War on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favourite shows. That way, you'll never miss an episode. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell your co-workers, break all the rules of the Official Secrets Act, and why not leave a review to help others find the podcast? Thank you for joining myself and Dr. Christine Schmidt, and I look forward to your company again next time for another wee bit of war.